Someone else want to be mic guy? Checkity check, check. Did I miss any blanks, Lee, or did I get them? Well, the oh. <laughs> the last two. The darkness has not comprehended the light. The darkness has not overtaken the light. No, that that's probably the trickiest translation piece because the word can go in both directions. Um, to overtake or to grasp, but just as grasp can have a mental, like to comprehend grasp, or to lay hands on, you know, it's the same type of play on words that can go there. And I know that if you've got the NASB, the NIV, um, and you've got the New King James, what's the New King James give for verse 5? The darkness has not. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just trying to explain the distinction there. Okay, any other blanks that we're missing here? Okay, then any questions in general? It's kind of a question related to something that you said a couple weeks ago, maybe. So if anyone else has questions on today specifically. I just I kick, it, kick it off, Zach, go. Okay. So um, when you're talking about like, uh, First, I guess, clarification with Paul, like pretty much always using like a title with Jesus, yeah. like Lord Jesus, Christ Jesus. Um, I found some instances where it seems like he doesn't use a title. So is okay. it just like most of the time he does. But well, there's the one time in Philipp- in Philippians, there's only <laughs> one occurrence mm-hmm. and it's Philippians 2, 7 or 9 or something okay. like that. But I, I know it's not a law and that's right. part of what my prophet. OK, so. Let me, <clears throat> do, sorry, I'm cutting you off. Go where you so want to go. So there's, uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, there's some verses that don't have a title, but I was wondering, is that just like, in the Greek, it's kind of implied, and so in the English, it looks like no. it's not. And it's, it's not a law. I mean, that's part of what, Mc, uh, so Zach's referencing my professor, McDougal, in seminary, and he, uh, he I, and I think McDougal is very, intentionally not trying to make laws and bind consciences and yet trying to follow apostolic tradition. So no, you're right. There's uh, very few occurrences in Paul where he says Jesus without giving him a title. There are a couple, but what's Paul's pattern? He wants to give Christ titles of honor. And so his point was, that seems like a good pattern to have as well. And he was also making it clear this isn't some law. It's, It's kind of like, I'm only aware of one instance in the New Testament where Paul thanks someone. What he does far more often is thank God in the presence of other people. Now, I don't want to make a law out of that. We must not thank people. There's at least one instance where Paul does. And yet, clearly, you can pick up what Paul regularly does is he'd say things like, Zach, I want to let you know that I thank God on your behalf. That's Mm -hmm. the most common way Paul expresses gratitude to people. I think it's a great tradition. The danger would be making it a law. I think that's a great way of dealing with thanks. In the similar way, if, if uh, I'll, I'll say this though, the, the movement towards over-familiarizing yourself with Jesus, the, the movement towards what I sort of jokingly refer to as high-five Jesus, you know, hey, you know, is not a movement Paul would have taken on. He's moving towards honor, glory, and, and respect. 
Mm-hmm. And the Jesus, yeah. as last seen appearing to John on Patmos, is not high five Jesus. He's falling in your face as if dead Jesus. And part of it is I think people forget he's no longer the humbled Son of Man. He's now the glorified Son of Man. And so I, I sometimes think we are way more comfortable with veiled glory Jesus, Jesus in the Gospels, than we are with Jesus as the exalted Lord of Lords with a hair like fire and eyes like flaming. Go, go to Revelation 1. Yeah, just the other day we were reading in the big picture story Bible with uh, my kids. And in Revelation, when it's talking about that, it has a picture of trying to, you know, <laughs> yeah. put into an yeah, image yeah. what that looks like. And Violet says, and I was like, that's Jesus. And Violet says, he looks weird. And I was like, yeah, he definitely looks different <laughs> right. than right, right. in all the other spots, doesn't he? <laughs> right. So, so one of the things to remember is Jesus is no longer humbled. He has veiled his glory. He set aside whatever Philippians means by he emptied himself. He's not empty anymore, whatever he emptied himself of. And so the last time he shows up now, I mean, because we see him in the book of Revelation prophetically looking forward. But in Revelation 1, we have a historical narrative of John on the island of Patmos when Jesus appeared to him. And here's how he describes him. Um, 1-9. I, John, your brother and partner of tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his waist. The hair of his head was white like wool, like like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I ran up and gave him a high five. No, I fell at his feet as though dead. So the last time Jesus is seen in the Bible, he's not... High five Jesus. I mean, and and I'm not trying to be, and and this is a, there's, there's, there's both Jesus as compassionate high priest, Jesus welcoming. I don't want to diminish that. I don't want to paint a picture of Jesus as harsh and unapproachable, but it's also not a flippant, you know, hey, I mean, it's, it's Psalm 2, rejoice with trembling. It's both. So I think sometimes people, if, if I could take the sort of, what I have referred to as high five Jesus is people's attempt to make Jesus approachable. You come to him. I don't want you to feel like he's, he's unapproachable. And to that end, that's great. Absolutely. Jesus says, come unto me. I'm weak, meek and lowly take upon my burden is light. Um, he is a sympathetic high priest who intercedes on our behalf and ever lives to intercede on our behalf for the father. Amen. Amen. And amen. Without being, Hey, you know, that's not, that's not the, the New Testament motif. And we've got to find a way to thread that needle without having him so awesome that we cringe away like at Sinai. I mean, at Sinai, right, God's showing up at the mountain, and the people do not want any part of this mountain. They get us, Moses, you go talk to him, or we're going to die, and we're going to stay back here. Well, that is not the right response to Jesus. Um, you shouldn't shrink back 
and say, hey, can someone else go talk to him for me? Because that's scary. So we, we want to make him approachable. But in an attempt to make him too approachable, you can sort of end up with, you know, like just this Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. I've seen those. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah. Okay. Any, any, any thoughts on any of that? Further runnings with that? Do you want to say any more on that, Zach? Or is that kind of what you wanted to point out? Or? Yep, that's good. That's good. All right. Hey, all right. Okay, so I was raised Roman Catholic. Yeah. And it, um, I, I've been thinking even recently how so many people like have Jesus crucified on the cross, like even at the front of the church or the necklaces. Yeah. And there's something about that that always bothered me. And this reinforces that, that why are we holding on to that particular? Well, it's, it's all what you need to do with it. It's all that the, the re, there's a reason why the Protestant Reformation, if they use crosses, took Jesus off the cross. Now, their reason for that may not be in someone's mind, right? So um, the reason why the Reformers took Jesus off the iconographic cross is because they were battling the notion of the real presence of Christ at the Lord's Supper. So under Roman Catholic teaching, the Mass, I think I can quote this, is a bloodless sacrifice. It is a true bloodless sacrifice. And the Reformers did not believe that. And so, and in one sense, the Roman Catholic Mass, Christ is being crucified. His, his body is present in a, as a real sacrifice that really deals with sin, that really is effective, and it's bloodless. And the Reformers rejected transubstantiation. Luther went with consubstantiation. Um, and so the reason the, the Reformation and Reformed churches generally have crosses without Christ on it is for that reason. So if somebody wants to remember and be pictured and, and be reminded of Christ's sacrifice, I, got, I don't, again, don't want to make a law. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's generally why Protestants, when they have crosses, have crosses without Jesus on the cross. Not, th- not that you couldn't have a picture of Jesus on the cross that could be edifying and encourage whatever. Um, but that's generally the basis behind why in Catholicism, he's almost always, if you have a cross, pictured on the cross, and why in Protestantism, usually not. That's, that's the historic basis of it. Well, now I had another thought. Wouldn't okay. Jesus on the cross be idolatry because we're supposed to have no graven images? Oh, you bring up a big question. Um, okay. What, we may or may not have time for that question. What you're okay. dealing with... No, no. I, I'll set this out and let's see if people have other questions. If you want to go deal with this, you can deal with this. The question is, um, are we under the commandment that I read this morning, the, the third commandment, to not have graven images? Right? Is, is the, that's the third commandment, right? Uh, is the second commandment? What? I think it's the second. Oh, yeah. Two second commandments. I see. Yeah, that's terrible. Wow. Okay. How did I get out of seminary and not know that? Is, is the second commandment, are we under the second commandment? Because if we are, and this is the pr- part of the problem, there's no compromise. It, the people that hold to second commandment, you cannot image God. You cannot draw a stick figure of Jesus. That's imaging God. You want to go really clear, you can't even imagine what Jesus looked like because now you're making a graven image in your mind. And if we're under the second commandment, I get it. The question is, are we under the second commandment? And if we have time, we can deal with that question. Um, but that's, but that's, that's the issue you're dealing with there is not the, the second commandment would not permit crosses pictures 
It's not a so, so the simple answer. No, there's no way you can have a cross or a picture of Jesus and be keeping the second commandment. There's no way. Um, the question is, are we under the second commandment? But I don't think there's any way you could squeeze icons and pictures and murals and Jesus storybook Bibles with pictures and have that in any way fit with the second commandment. Not at all. Jake? Um, jumping back to your sort of high five Jesus analogy, just for one second, um, I I understand why maybe like in, in like a picture storybook for young children we we do that with Jesus and and try to make the image so so um, readily accessible and so not scary. I get why we do that for young kids, but as someone who survived many horrific youth groups growing up, I think it is a terrible crime. Youth groups can be horrific? No. I don't believe you. I think it's a terrible crime that um, we teach, we, we do the same thing for adolescents. Um, that we make, you know, Jesus is just all right with me. Yeah, man, I hate that. I hated it then. I still despise it today. Because in a world that teaches teenagers that there's nothing more real and nothing more important than your feelings or what you want, I think that there's great gain in teaching that there's a, a yeah. an all-powerful, you know, terrifying God who's made everything, who rules over everyone, who will judge the living and the dead. And now while you're in your formative years, might be a great time to sort of grapple with that. Right. I... I was wondering if you could comment on why it seems to be the uh, industry standard to teach teenagers that Jesus is what you called high five Jesus. Why do churches do that? Um, because we overreact and because balance is difficult. Go to first Peter. Um, it's people are reacting against a God who is, this is, I mean, this is the classic, I'm, I'm teaching a, a intro to philosophy class with the homeschoolers, and there's classic tensions. Um, how do you have a God who is transcendent and yet imminent? So the gods of the the Greeks and the Norse gods, they're really imminent, but they're not. They're really actually kind of part of creation. They're really just kind of like superheroes. They're kind of like Marvel superheroes. So you've got gods who are relatable, and you've got gods who share our experience but they're part of the created order really kind of and so then you've got transcendent gods and you know like islam gods transcendent but now there's this hardness to this difficulty of getting approachability and so as you try to emphasize one of, if you don't emphasize both the biblical part of what makes the god of the bible the god revealed in christianity unique this is john frame's point is he is both absolute and personal he's he's absolute he's he's transcendent he is other he is holy and he's personal and approachable and and getting that tension in balance is really hard for people and so you see excesses on either side and then you see counter responses to other sides and so if you grew up in i don't i'm guessing if you grew up in a tradition where god is so holy you just need to stay away and maybe the priest can go talk to him for you. And now we're kind of back to Exodus 19 and Exodus 20, where the people are like, dude, you, you go deal with him because this is scary stuff. You know, um, if, that's, if that's where you're coming from, then this truth that Jesus can liken himself to a mother hen who would gather up her chicks, this Jesus who says, I turn no one away from me, 
This Jesus that Hebrews 4 says is a sympathetic and compassionate high priest. Let us draw near for help. You want to so shout that from the rooftops that you do it in a in a way that not goes too far. I don't think you could overemphasize the ability to approach Jesus. But if you see anything intimidating what Jesus is getting in the way of that, so you sh- flatten all those things down, well, now you're, now you're out of balance. The, the balance is, First Peter, I love, I love this imagery here. Um, First Peter, um, let me find it, 14, 114. No, no, 117. Sorry. Well, yeah, start in 14, but it's, it's the point's in 17. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. Now, now here it is in verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. And what Peter's saying is, is if you have the boldness to say, the judge of the universe who will sentence men to hell is my father. Maybe an analogy might be, you know, a tutor of Alexander the Great in his prime, in his rule, to his son. Like, do you understand? Your father puts people to death. Your father is king of kings. Your father is a big deal. And yes, you can cry out for him in the night when you're scared and have a nightmare. But understand, your, your dad's serious business. Something like that is what's being said here. So, because his thing is, look, if you're going to, if you, everyone else deals with God as judge. Everyone else will deal with God. And they will deal with him as judge. And you call on him as father. Understand that privilege. So it's not to minimize the access. As father. And as having his spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. I mean, Timothy Keller, who I wouldn't recommend with everything, has one great quote. Only a child will awaken the emperor to ask for a glass of water. Will cry out to his father. We have that type of access. It, I'm saying it poorly. He said it better than that. But I liked the quote. Um, and and that's, that's the type of access we have. And yet our father is still the judge of the universe. Let's not forget it. And that's what Peter's trying to balance. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, what's the proper response? Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Like, you, like understand, you're like, God's my father. The judge of the universe you're saying is your father. Awesome. Act accordingly. And that's that balancing act of, of imminence and approachability and accessibility we have the spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. I need no other priest than my great high priest to draw near to God's throne in prayer. And yet, don't just sort of waltz in. I mean, I remember I was, I was at college, and one of the student um, life guys was praying. And he started off, and he just went, hey, God. And, and <laughs> I had a trouble with that. I mean, and if he and his conscience can do that, I don't want to, like, condemn that. But that, to me, sounded so not conduct yourself with fear. And it's a balancing act. And I, again, I don't want to make rules. I don't want to make laws. Um, but it's, uh, oh, my wife found the quote for me. Thank you, Serena. Um, can you read the quote for me, Serena? The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Yeah, that's a great quote. 
That's a great quote. The only person who dares wake up a king at three in the morning for a glass of water is a child. We have that type of access. That's a great quote. Um, and no, mother, that is not a carte blanche recommendation of Tim Keller. Um, she wants me to make that clarification. Anyway, um, so, so, I, so that balancing act of both approachability, we tend to just emphasize one or the other. Psalm 2 is the other example. Rejoice with trembling. Like it's, and we tend to go to one of the two extremes where we either get the trembling and then we're like the people at Sinai who just want to stay away or we're like the people who, you remember when the ark, so Hophni and Phineas take the ark out like a rabbit's foot and it, they get killed and it gets captured by the Philistines and then the ark goes on a military campaign all its own. That was amazing. The ark goes on a military campaign, comes back with spoils of war. It's amazing. The Philistines are like, enough, get it out of here. They put it on, they put like tribute on it. They put gold rats and tumors because everywhere the ark went, rats and tumors followed. And, they, and so the Israelites are just chilling and, and then here comes the ark on a, on a cart. And the Israelites thought, well, then we might as well open it. <laughs> and... 30-something thousand of them died? And again, it's this familiarity, over-familiarity. Like, it, the balancing act is approach God, draw near, and do so both intimately and with reverence. It's, we, we tend to either do reverence, and then we'll stay half a mile away, or intimacy, and we're all equals and everything's good. And that's, that's threading that needle seems to be difficult for Americans. Um, yes, Lee, microphone. Microphone. Well, if you continue on there in First Peter, it says, uh, "Remember how you were, uh, how we got the right to yeah. or the right or the privilege to approach right. Christ, and God did through the blood of Christ." And you know, you just got to keep a big picture yeah. of where you fit in that gigantic universal yeah. plan, and uh, then you'll be okay. You'll, yeah. you'll get the the closeness, and then you'll get the respect and fear and great thankfulness right. for what you did. Right. Somehow, I don't think you could have too high a view of God and take him too seriously. I don't think that's possible. But I also don't think you could believe you have full access too much either. I mean, so anything you're doing that's either lowering your view of God or making you feel like you dare not come before him is bad. <laughs> and, and so finding a way to have both a high view of God and believe that we have the access that we have is the challenge and and people struggle with it people struggle with it to be sure don don you got something oh oh no my wife's got something what's up questions and stuff like that. I can go further with that, but, or we can go back to um, Renee's question about the law. That, okay. Before I, before I make a decision, anyone got to go any, you got something done? Hit it. Microphone. 
to those purposes are his glory yeah. and his pleasure. Mm. Uh, Revelation 4 uh, is all things were created for his pleasure. Yeah. And, and, what, and what I'm just trying to get at is, is a lot of the problems we have with the suffering and things in this world would be settled if we understood this is God's world to do with as he pleases. And so I've, I've, I, I pray and I do not want any of my children to perish, but I've said this before, and I, and I think it's, I think wrapping your head around this before the whirlwind comes will make, if and when the whirlwind comes, it less terrible, is at least, uh, no, no doubt I would be undone if my wife got in a car crash and I lost some of my family, no doubt. God would do me no wrong. They're his. They're his property. They're his possessions. I would be undone and broken by it, and that's as it should be. But they're his. He can do what he wants with his things. And, and more than that, he's revealed himself to be wise and good and loving. So even if I can't see the wisdom in it, even if I can't see the goodness in it, I can have confidence that one day when I see what he's up to, he knows, he knows what he's doing. Um, but wrapping your head around that and getting the fact that he gets to be God and we get to be the creature and, and, and being, coming to grips with that and like, okay, which is then the basis why when God says ethical things, we struggle with when we, when we tend to be feel embarrassed about what God's commands are, but what he says is right and what he says is wrong. And I think a lot of Christians today with the, with the, uh, with, with issues of marriage and sex and gender and all that stuff, like at the end of the day, if, if God really did make everything, then he has the right to tell us the rules and how things work. Even if we don't get it, even if it's purely on that authority basis, and I don't think it is. I think we can see the goodness of his plan, but simply on a raw authority claim, it's his. We didn't come up with marriage, he did, right? And so seeing those sort of uh, load-bearing columns of this is the basis of God's right to rule. He didn't become elected God. We didn't vote for him. And, and as Americans, we, we sometimes need to be reminded of just raw, absolute authority that no one agreed to. Um, back, back in our series on um, homosexuality, transgenderism, and abortion, I, I referenced that a lot of our ethic comes from guys like John Locke and Rousseau. Um, and Locke and Rousseau, it's the social what? Social contract. And, and so Locke, we'll stick with Locke because I was reading some stuff on him for this class I'm teaching. Coming out of the, the Reformation and the religious wars, the, the notion of, of law coming upon the divine right of kings, which at least in the Western world is what the basis was, was being questioned. And okay, which king? And what I mean, we, you know, Israel's history, it switches back and forth, Catholic, Protestant, Catholic, Protestant, and people are killing everybody. Okay, this isn't working. We need a different basis for government. And so guys like Locke and Rousseau and Hobbes come up with what is basically um, consent. Consent is what makes authority and obligations legitimate. And much of our responsibilities deal with consent. If you're trying to distinguish between rape and a wedding night, consent is the big piece that distinguishes the two, right? Fair enough. But guys, but the part of our problem is, I think one way to diagnose our culture's ethical quandary is our culture, I think, has no room. And, and we, by extension, I think, have drunk the Kool-Aid where we have a very difficult time, if not outright rejecting, a non-consensual obligation. 
I, I think that's fundamentally at the root of the, the abortion logic. If this woman doesn't want to carry this child, who are we to say she must? And it's that notion of non-consensual. I mean, I, I think what is abhorrent in the life of a pro-choice person is the notion that a woman, against her will, without her consent, would be told by other people, men in particular, that she must do something that she doesn't want to do. Likewise, I don't want, I didn't consent to be male, or I didn't consent to be female. And so this notion that against someone's will, third parties could tell them, no, 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 you have an obligation. Likewise, I don't want to stay in this marriage. And if you don't, and so I think our culture, you could rightly view a lot of our ethical changes in the last 40, 50 years as really, who are we to give anyone a non-consensual obligation. And yet we recognize there are non-consensual obligations. Children don't, I didn't ask these parents to be my, I didn't ask for these people to be my parents. Doesn't matter. And certainly as it relates to God, it's not as though you're only obligated to honor God if you consent to it. And so raw claims of authority, the potter has made you. I didn't ask to be made. Doesn't matter. I mean, as, as, as hard as that can be, we, as Americans, we need to wrap our heads around the fact God is making, could make, has the right to make a raw claim of authority. Now, praise God he comes with a wise, loving plan. Praise, praise God that he uses that authority to, to suffer on our behalf. But it's not less than that. It's not less than that. Lee. Yeah. And that ultimately, in my experience with counseling others, talking to people, is where the real tests of faith come. Go, go to John. I call you friends. I don't call you slaves, but I call you. Is it John 15? It's 13 to 15. Let me find it. Um, um, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends. But then he defines friendship particularly. Um, I'll look up friends. It's uh, John, Luke, John 15, 15, 14. Okay. Okay. Start in 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that he should lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. This is a really interesting, we need to let Jesus define friendship because I think part of the, Jake, part of the Jesus is my homeboy stuff is they'll take, he's my friend. And most, how many of your friends have commandments for you? <laughs> That's not normally how we view friendship. 
And so again, what we need to better understand, it'd be like if like Napoleon or some emperor said, I like to think he was my friend. That'd be a different type of friendship than the kid in the play yard. And so Jesus defines friendship here, um, and it ties in with what you're saying. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you my slaves or my servants. Why not? Because you still have commandments for me. Here's what makes us different than slaves. The slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit and it should abide. So whatever you ask in my father's name, this I will give you. These things I command so that you will love one another. And what Jesus is saying is this. As much as Jesus has the right to raw authority, just do it because I said so, we're friends in that he, he shares much of the Father's mind and purpose in why he does it. It's not wrong of us to say, Father, I'd like to please help me understand why you're doing this. In regard to your sister, if you said, Lord, what were you doing? I'd like to see what you're doing. I'd like to, it would help my faith. It would help me um, tr- tr- Rejoice in this, which is difficult. If I could see what you were doing, I believe what you're doing is good. Like, that's the sense in which we're friends. Jesus is like, slaves just get told, get over here, go over here, go do that. And Jesus is saying, I've, I've shared a lot to what my father's up to, what he's doing. Um, and so it's, it's fine to seek that. But the, the, test, the, the test is always in regards to the authority of God, the authority of Scripture, not what you do with those passages that you agree with. I, I, I know I've, I've probably overused this example. It takes no authority for me to give you 20 bucks. It takes authority for me to say, hey, open your wallet and give me $20. The test of authority is not you do with those passages of the Bible you want to put up on your wall. The test of authority is what do you do with those passages that seem ugly, angular, sharp, and brutal to you? Now what? Now what? Who's... who's Who's in charge? You know, um, now we're going to find out who's the boss in your life and in your mind and your thinking. You want to say something? Go. I think understanding is God, but what kind of God is he? What, what do we believe about God? Mm. Uh, again, James says, you know, the devil believes God is right. God. Right. Right. What, what kind of God do we believe he is? Is he good? Is he wise and sovereign? Sovereignty and, and the, would go towards the, yeah. the respect, the honor, the gravitas. Right. The, the goodness would be, the, if you want to call it, the soft side. <laughs> soft uh, side. And, and what I'm trying to avoid, what I'm trying to avoid, and the reason why I'm emphasizing the raw claim of authority as creator is, it's not. I don't want. We're not really. We're not really submitting to him. Well. Since he has a plan, since he's doing good things for me, I guess I'm with the thing understand. No, 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 no. Start the other way. He's God. Definitionally, he's not accountable to you. Now, I got this wonderful, amazing news that the God who's not accountable to you, the God who does as he wills, is good and is for you and has a wise plan to share much of it with you. But I want to avoid bribing or persuading us into letting God be God by his soft side, as you said. The very nature of authorship is authority. We need to 
grasp that independent of the God who made all things is good. Now, you're right, in a sense, the God who's created. But I don't want to, I want to, I want to, and vivisect the part of us that says, why should anyone have to tell me what to do? The one who wants to tell you what to do is really good, and he's really kind, and he's his son, and he loves you a lot. Well, in that case, I guess I'll let him tell me what to do. No, he's God, you're animated dirt. Yes, animated dirt. Right? No, no, I mean, no, you're, you're right. I mean, and so, like, I, that's all I'm trying to resist is this sort of talking people into being okay with God being God. God. And you're not, and I'm not. And resolving that conflict, and then, wonderfully, the God who is, is a good God, the God who is a wise God, the God who is a sacrificing, servant hearted, savior God. But I don't want to make you find his Godship acceptable because he's good. He's God. Right, right, right now. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to balance out is, is um, because make no mistake, there will be times where God's wise and good plan will look awful to you. And if the only reason you're willing to trust him and the only reason you're willing to submit to him is because you've seen how good his plan is, then all this, maybe this is the best way and then I'll let you talk to him. The reason I'm emphasizing this is if the only reason you're willing to accept God's Godship is his goodness and his wisdom and his love, the day you don't see that, the day what he's ordained looks terrible and awful, you're, you're going <laughs> to, you're not going to trust him. And then you're going to have two, you're going to have a double whammy. You're going to have the whammy of whatever that strife is, the lost loved one, the cancer, the lost job, the whatever it is that's, that's undoing you. And you're going to have this issue of, but God, what are you doing? Why do you hate me? Why are you? And now you're going to have a war on two fronts. So that's that's what I'm that, that's precisely what I'm resisting is God earning his right to rule. We start with the absolute fact of his right to rule and now amazingly amazingly this God is for us and good. Okay, go Deb. So back to the sermon then. Yeah. That's what was going on sort of with Nicodemus, right? Yeah. No, when we get to Nicodemus, my shorthand version of Nicodemus is if his, am I the only one who's ever thought Jesus' response to Nicodemus is kind of blunt, angular? Why is Jesus so um, direct and confrontational with Nicodemus? Nicodemus shows up with what sounds like a decent starting point. Teacher, rabbi, we know you are from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Why doesn't Jesus say... That's good. good. Good for you to observe, Nicodemus. Now, I'm far more than that, but I'm glad you're with me this far. Why is Jesus' response, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of heaven. And then contrast that with the woman at the well, who is dodging Jesus. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. That's right, you've had five. Speaking of husbands, which mountain should we worship on? That's a total dodge. And Jesus follows her and, right, so why is he so patient and long-suffering with the woman at the well, and why does Nicodemus get such an angular report? 
the short version, I think Nicodemus is there to size up Jesus. I, don't miss we. And don't miss the fact that the Pharisees have already sent emissaries to question John the Baptist. They've already questioned Jesus in Jerusalem. By what authority or sign do you do this? And I think the Pharisees are sending Nicodemus to size up Jesus. And in that point of perspective, what Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, what on earth makes you think you're qualified to size me up? What makes you think you'd know truth if you saw it? And so Jesus, Heisman, if I can use the sports illustration, the Heisman Trophy, the guy's like stiff arming, right? Is that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. This is a basketball thing, right? Okay, just joking, just joking. The, it, the reason Nicodemus gets response to this is because Jesus will not consent to Nicodemus as judge over Jesus. Jesus will not, he, I don't recognize your right to sit in judgment on me. That, that's what I think is going on with the Nicodemus Jesus encounter. So yeah, it's, it's, you don't earn, he doesn't get, he's, he doesn't earn his right to be God. Um, but, okay, Deb, was that what you were asking or is there more? Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's, so John, um, what is it, 717, Jesus has this great promise. And, and, and this is something I, I, how you come and ask God questions is, makes all the difference in the world. In John 717, Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do the Father's will, he will know if, this, if I speak on my own or if this teaching is from God. Right? Which I would take as a promise to mean, look, if you want to be reconciled with God, and what you're saying is something like, should I look here, or should I go to Mormonism, or should I go to Islam, or should I go to uh, Hinduism? Where do I go to be reconciled with God? I want to be at peace with God. I want to do what God wants me to do. Which of these people claiming to speak for God? Right? Jesus is saying, if that's where you're at, fair enough, you'll know. You'll know, right? Um, and so asking for confirmation, asking questions like that, like one who wants to be right with God. But we also see the people just keep wanting signs, keep, keep proving yourself to me. And now this is what C.S. Lewis refers to as God in the dock. God's in the defendant's booth. And when God can explain to me cancer, when God can explain to me not, you know, starvation, when God can explain to me Auschwitz, then, and, once, and, and, I'll, and I'll be a fair judge. I mean, I'll give him a good hearing. And it's possible he's got a good explanation. And once he explains all that to me, well, then I could worship him. Then I could listen to him. That is what Jesus will have none of. So if you have real questions, if you really... So a child saying, I don't understand, Father, why? I mean, the analogy I use, my son's not here, so I'll, I'll tell you, is Jake brought Abner, and I had to tell Abner he had to get a shot, and Abner does not, he takes after his dad, do not like shots. And so Jake was kind enough to step out of the room, because Jake's a dentist, and Abner's crying. <laughs> and it's a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah. I still cry when I get needles, so it's okay. Yeah. Um, so he was maybe nine years old. And I just held him, and I said, look, it's okay for you to be scared. This needs to happen, and you need to trust me, and I'll hold your hand, and you can be scared, and you can cry, but I am, you need to obey me and sit still while this happens. Like, that's not optional. Are you good with that? And he just was scared, and he said, okay, and I was never prouder of my son. I was not ashamed of his fear, because 
the distinction between father, I don't like this, I'm scared, I don't understand, totally fine. If you're also going to say, but you're my father and I'll submit, which is what Abner was doing. Now, if instead what Abner said to me was, until you explain to me why this man needs to stick a needle in my mouth, I'm not doing it. Now we've got a fundamental issue of our roles. So you, you want to look at God and say, I don't understand why. In, in a, from a heart like a child that's willing to submit. Go ahead. We just studied, you know, Habakkuk, right? Um, and, and we saw Habakkuk. Lord, what gives? But don't come at it with God in the dock. Any sense of you better explain yourself to me. You better account for yourself to me. No, no, it wouldn't. And so that's, that's the subtle shift we need to make. And again, this gets back to transcendence and eminence. If we're so approachable, we're, but see, the problem is all of our authorities are accountable to us. We like to remind them that, you know, you serve the people and you're only here because we voted for you. And, you know, and then we transfer that over to God and no, that, that doesn't work. That doesn't work at all. And so we, we, we need these checks periodically because what is potentially true in our governmental system is, not, I mean, in one sense, we'd be better off if we had kings because God's a king. And we, we don't know much about kings in America. We look over, the queen just died, and a lot of us are like, oh, that's odd. Yeah. And we just don't get, we don't get potentates and authority like the Bible assumes. Mo- like most of human history, people dealt with that, you know. Um, so... Okay, we got five minutes. Any other? Yes. How do we mix in the holiness of Jesus as we talk about all these things? Yeah. You mentioned Exodus and the people afraid of the lightning and the thunder and all those things. Or I, we're working on the Proverbs study for a small group, and this kind of came up with the fear of the Lord as the yeah. beginning of wisdom. Yeah. And so in trying to keep that balance between he's a, he's a friend, yet he's the holy God that has the authority of judgment. Right. How do you balance it? Um, I know you need to balance it, but how pri- to? Primarily looking to markers that you're going off the road one way or the other. The markers that you're not viewing God as holy would be casualness in sin. If you're casual, if you, let me turn it up to 11. You, most people say, it's okay. God's a sweetheart. He forgives. I'll just ask him for forgiveness later. It's okay. Now, no one would say that that blatantly. But if that's what you see in your heart with sin, then you need to, to lift up the, the holiness of God. On the other hand, if you find yourself fearful to approach him, if you find yourself like a dog cringing in the corner, then you're, you, you might need to meditate on, I, I've been given a spirit of adoption. I wish I cry of a father. I'm told, I'm commanded to come in the middle of the night for that glass of water. And so your prayer life, your, your adoration, your drawing near is going to indicate if you believe his, his fatherliness, his imminence. And your your the way you trivially deal with his word, the way you trivially deal with sin is going to indicate whether you think he's holy. Because in Peter, it's be holy as I'm holy, right? So I'd be looking to those markers for my balance. Am I, am I indicating, a, am, I, am I seeing a growing reverence for his word, a growing reverence to not 
displease him or am I less concerned about displeasing him? And am I seeing a growing approach and drawing near and cherishing that? Or do I actually like not drawing near because he's kind of scary? I, it might be other axes, but those two points would I be looking at in my life to indicate where I'm at. Don, bring us home. You, you mentioned uh, how we deal with sin. Uh, somebody talking about uh, Adam and Eve, and re rather than coming and confessing to God, they hit, cut, tried to yeah. cover and hide. Yeah. How do, how do I see God right. again? Right. Uh, we want to, with ourselves and our children and, and yeah. disciple, uh, disciples, have, be good sin confessors, not good sin hiders. Right. Uh, yeah. Amen. Amen. Okay, everybody. I'll let you out three minutes early. Woohoo!